Well, um, welcome everybody here. Welcome online. Also, I'm glad you are able to join us there online for us. Uh, tonight, oh, this is session eight, and we're going to cover a, a huge chunk. No, we're not going to go over everything that you went over last lesson, but you did have a chance in your discussion groups to go over that together. Um, in the last session, your time in the Word, you did something that very few people really ever do, and um, that is read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. <laughs> Uh, Leviticus has infamously been referred to as the uh, the book of the Bible where our Bible reading plans go to die, and uh, so maybe, hopefully you made it through. And it sounds like, based on the discussion uh, sounds I was hearing from your rooms, <laughs> that it went well and you had some fun and um, enjoyed. Hopefully enjoyed that. We're going to have some fun tonight as well. And uh, everything that you did um, in that last lesson is really the preparation for the rest of this study that we have together. Um, so as you move into this lesson, you just finished a huge flyover, right? You did most of Leviticus and then again all the way uh, numbers through Deuteronomy. And we, we call that a flyover. It kind of looks like this is an image to kind of keep in your mind. Uh, you're up in the airplane and you're getting this big, huge view, a scope of everything um, from that huge chunk of scripture. And then you're going to start your the next day of this lesson, day two on your lesson, and uh, this is a, another flyover day, really, but now we're going to move in just and park it in Leviticus. So you're, you just finished a huge flyover, and now you're going to do another one, and this is more like a hot air balloon view. And so you're, you're a little bit lower down, you're not zooming through the sky at 300,000, uh, 30,000 feet, and um, you're a little lower, you're a little slower, but you're still getting a bit of a bird's eye view. You're in the hot, this is the hot air balloon day, is, is that day you're going to be doing tomorrow. So you're going to be rereading another passage that's going to look familiar, and you're going to move in on it and move through that in a, in a different way. Um, but as, I, as you move through that, I want to uh, remind you that there is a plan set up for you in this page. If you want to turn to this page in your outline, it's on page 175. And that day-by-day -day outline is set up for you to give you exactly that, day-by-day. -day. Honestly, every time I go and open up that, that page, I keep I, that song comes to my mind. Maybe you remember it from... Your kids, day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. I love that song. It always comes to my mind. But day by day is a, is a great way to give you that routine and that rhythm. If you don't have time to complete a lesson on a given day, just go to that outline and just do the reading for that day. And uh, also right next to the, the day portion, you'll see for the read read portion is the write the word and uh, the, the write the word portion this time around is really integrated into the lesson. We're going to be doing Psalm 51. Uh, I've written it so that your prayer time is going to be focused on praying scripture. You'll be praying Psalm 51. You have the opportunity to write all of Psalm 51. There's more write the word pages on that back table. If you've never done a write the word as the portion of our study, this would be a great week to go ahead and do that. It's a fabulous psalm, and you're going to love how it connects. And uh, so you will also be given the opportunity to select a verse to memorize. Normally, I pick a verse, and we all do it together. Uh, but this one, I want to have you read Psalm 51 and then choose a verse that God puts on your heart to commit to memory as you go through all that. So all the ways that are provided for you are ways for you to not just do a Bible study, but to do what? 
dwell exactly that you can dwell in that and one of the ways that we are doing that is by continuing to memorize and recite again the Shema which you did in your group and I'd like to do it together as a big group now would you recite this with me here O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength this is our foundation this is our why this is what we can come back to in the moments in our life that we have questions, that we have stress, that we feel overwhelmed. This verse right here, the truths of this verse are enough, really, that we could dig into just that one verse for the rest of our lives. And God could have just given us this one true word and left us with that, but he gave us so much more. And that's what this study is about, of course. So enjoy the more. Enjoy as we're in this. Enjoy being humble, being teachable, being willing, being curious, right? What more do you have for me, Lord, is a great question as you go into your study time. How can I know you better, Lord, you can ask? What areas of my life do I still need to surrender to you? Come back to that again and again. And come back to this verse again and again. In that last session, I reviewed two really important concepts to help us to read and understand the Bible. And it's realizing the difference between these two that are going to help us move through the passages. So I want to review with, that, with you again on that. And this is the idea of the difference between Scripture that's prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive and descriptive. Oh, you know what? I forgot to mention. On the back table, I also have an um, outline. If you'd like to take more detailed notes... It's on the back table over there. You're welcome to get up and, and grab that. And uh, thank you, Vanna, for showing us that. <laughs> and those will be more coordinated to the, to the slides up here, so I have extra copies of those for you back there. If anybody else wants one, I'll let Michelle walk around and pass those around for us. Thank you, or Diana. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> um, so prescriptive is simply a passage verse that prescribes how we should live, descriptive describes how they did live, what did happen. So I'm going to give you a passage, and I want you to think through it in terms of, is this prescriptive or is it descriptive, okay? Here's the passage, and it's from Exodus chapter 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? Who's, our, who's in the descriptive camp? <laughs> who's in the prescriptive camp? There's a little bit of prescriptive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it certainly describes Moses' encounter, what happened to him, and also who it happened to, Moses and, and of course, God. And we meet God, and we learn some things about God. Um, so it's describing that God's holy, God has expectations. Um, we can gather from this that God selects or elects to work closely with people by name, and we can get some understanding here. Um, and so in, a, in that sense, it's, it's um, descriptive of what's going on. But it's prescriptive also, I mean, it's descriptive also and prescriptive in the same sense, because we can learn what we should then do. 
we should be approaching God and how we should approach God because the, the, the concept remains the same for us as well. Like God cares about how his people come into his presence and how his people relate to them. And over and over and over again, we've seen that in Exodus and definitely in Leviticus because you read this verse and the content of this idea over and again. From Leviticus 11, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be what? Holy, for I am holy, right? This is the context, this passage, this verse, I mean, is in the context of dietary laws of all things. That's where this passage occurs. What to eat, what not to eat, right? It's prescriptive because it gives us the truth or prescribes for us exactly who God is and how we are expected to engage with God and how we're supposed to live our lives as holy people, right? Then later in the New Testament, Paul and Peter pick up on this and they repeat this verse and this concept when they teach the early Christians about who they are in Christ and about how they should live. Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, um, we should be holy and blameless before him. And then Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. All right? So at this point, I want to pause and give you a reminder of the title of the study, Saved and Set Apart. What's exciting is that as we study Leviticus, we not only see that God saved Israel, he saved them from what? What did he save them from? Slavery. Slavery, literally from Egypt, the land of Egypt. But when he saved his people, he didn't just save his people and conquer their enemy. He did that. But he did a, a whole lot more. He didn't just release them into the wild to go off and live and be free, you know, like a catch and release program. He didn't just save them and say, all right, good luck out there. I got rid of your enemy. Now go for it, right? No, he saved them. And the very first thing that he did with his people was give them a what? A calendar. He gave them a calendar. Now, we have calendars that we observe, if you think about your calendar and the events that are on it, your calendar is important to you because it probably you're going to celebrate a birthday. You're probably going to celebrate Thanksgiving, 4th of July. So a calendar isn't just points on a mark on a grid that tell us what and when to, when to do it. It speaks to identity. When we celebrate the 4th of July, we observe the 4th of July, every other country in the world has a July 4th. They may not call it that a day, but they don't celebrate it because in America it's a part of our identity. It's part of who we are. We recognize what happened on the 4th of July. When we, do, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, we gather together and we have an identity associated with that because we're thinking about the pilgrims and what they went through and now what we have. And we have that gratitude and that gratefulness and being thankful to God for all he's done. Christmas isn't just a day on the calendar. Of course, we celebrate Jesus' birth, but it's part of our identity. Easter, obviously. Birthdays that we celebrate. The calendar gives us part of our identity. So somewhere in your notes, as you're, as you're writing and making that, write down calendar and then draw a line to it that says identity. And some of the things that I'm going over with you right now, I'm hoping to just plant them into your mind. So as you come to parts later on in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you see things, you'll go, oh, maybe that's what's going on here. 
And that might give you a perspective on how to better understand that particular passage that you're going to. So God gives his people a calendar, the very first thing, because it wasn't just about the calendar. It was about identity. It was about who they were going to be in relation to him, right? He set them apart from their enemy and he set them apart for nothing. No, for himself. And then that's our mission as we read. We are looking for that as we read. Even in the complex and challenging and difficult passages, what's going on here? How is God addressing identity? How is God reminding his people of who he is and how they're to relate to him, right? Because ultimately, God did the exact same thing for me. He did the exact same thing for you, right? We had an enemy. I have an enemy. <laughs> he saved me from sin. He saved me from my enemy. He conquered death, right? And I haven't just been saved in catch and release and good luck out there, but I've been given a calendar, an identity. I've been set apart. I've been saved and I've been set apart, just like Paul reminds us in Ephesians. In fact, the entire Bible the complete record of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, or as my grandmother used to say, from the table of contents to the maps. <laughs> but everything is the idea. From Genesis to Revelation, everything in the entire Bible, that complete record points from beginning to, to end to the reality that there's something bigger going on than the stories and the accounts that are recorded in the Bible. We all know the story of David, and that's a great story, right? David and Goliath, right? We even know the story now, of course, Moses and, and the burning bush or being delivered out of the basket or Noah and the ark or Jonah, any of the stories. And they're just stories if they're not anchored in the truth of who God is and what he's calling for and how he's providing for us. Right? I'm hitting this point really hard because it's a big picture point and it's going to help you get perspective as you move through the rest of this study and, and even just in your general studies of the Bible altogether. God's plan is in Jesus for all of us to be saved, right? And so we are going to get into some content that's difficult. It might be dry in some parts. It might be super complex in other parts or confusing. It could be really action-packed. It could be kind of gory in some parts, mundane, shocking, all the things. But one truth is going to keep us on track as we go, and that all of this points to who? Jesus. And it's not just a Bible teacher and you who love Jesus already and have a relationship with him that gets that. You see, the Bible is a book of books, isn't it? It's a book that contains how many? Do you remember how many books are in the Bible? 66 books written by, do you remember how many authors? 40 authors. 66 books, 40 authors over a span of time that stretches, do you remember how many years? 1,500 years, <laughs> 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years, three languages and three continents with no historical errors and no contradictions. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is focused on God and his plan for relationship with you, with me, 
bringing us back into relationship with him. So as we read, if we can let that hover and continually be uh, mindful of that, it'll help us when we get to some of those complicated parts. I'm going to put a video up here on the screen in a minute, and I'm going to pray that technology cooperates with us and we can hear it. I think you'll see someone familiar um, in this uh, video as we go to watch, and then we'll talk about it. I want to show you something here, just briefly. Look at this. This is the one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So, at the bottom here, every single one of those lines is a biblical verse. Okay? Now, the length of the line is proportionate to how many times that verse is referred to in some way by some other verse. So you say, well, this is the first hyperlinked book. Right? I'm, I'm dead serious about that. Like, you can't click and get the hyperlinks, obviously, but it's a thoroughly hyperlinked book, and it's because, well, the people who worked on these stories that are hypothetically at the end, right, which is, the end can't affect the beginning. That's, that's the rule of time, right? What happens now can't affect what happened to you 10 years ago, even though it actually can, but whatever. <laughs> you reinterpret things, right, and then they're not the same, but whatever. We won't get into that. Speak. The entire video will be linked on my website. You can go and watch the whole thing. It's really great. That's Jordan Peterson. He's not a believer yet. He's a lot of good people in his life that have been working with him and praying for him, though. Um, but that's a beautiful visual, and I'm going to put that up on the screen. And, and um, Gene, I know you can't see it as well. Let me get it there. I'm going to angle that up. Maybe she can see it a little bit better. What's on the screen there for her? All right. Um, so that's up on the, that'll be up in your notes. You have it on the handout as well, but it, the full co color version of that'll be, but that's, that's Genesis to Revelation, all the scripture that are connected together. Um, so as you're studying, as you're reading, as you're thinking, as you're hearing about the books, keep this in mind. It's all connected. It all points to Jesus. This, there's a harmony. There's a purpose. There's a bigger picture going on in all of this. So all of the books, every story, every account, every passage, it all ultimately points to Jesus. In Luke 24, we read this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. It all points to him. He's talking to the disciples after God raised him from the dead, and they were slow to understand. They were trying to grasp what was going on. But everything meant, and Jesus just makes it plain to them. All of the Bible points to me. Hi. <laughs> it's all about me. All the prophecies that he fulfilled, the entire story of Israel that brought him to that moment, God's complete redemptive plan brings him to that point, and he says, it's all about me. Why did God have his instruction written down? Why? The Torah, which means instruction. Why did he have it? We, he didn't have to do it that way. Right? He could have done a connect the dot story in the stars or something, but he has it written down for us. Well, John 20 says this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The fulfilling of all the prophecies, God's plan, the rescue mission for us is in Jesus. And so every book of the Bible, the Old Testament, or what I like to call the foundational testament, points forward to him and every book of the new testament then announces him and what our lives look like when we are in him and when he will return so when we get to books like leviticus and numbers and deuteronomy we should ask questions like this how does this help me see jesus that's a great question to ask 
How does this point to him when you're stumped and confused, right? What was God doing with his people in this moment as he set up his plan for saving them? What was he doing to help me be a part of this picture? How does this help me understand him and know God in these portions, even the tricky stuff, right? Because is there an answer there? Even if it's confusing to you and not self-evident, there is, there is an answer. So that answer is actually anchored in a promise, a promise that God gave to Abraham. And that promise is repeated all throughout the Torah and all throughout the rest of the books, the Haftarah, the rest of the books of, of the Old Testament, that God made this promise back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 28. If you were in the Genesis study or any familiar study, you'll probably know this. But Amos uh, repeats this promise, and I don't have the, the verse up there on the screen for you, but I'll read it for you. It's from Amos chapter 3, and it's in verse 25. Amos three twenty-five. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring all the families on the earth will be blessed. Wow. Now, think about that. I'm going to read that again, and I'm going to read it with this perspective. We talked about this last time. You are now part of the us. You are part of this. If it's true of you that you have Jesus. Because why? You've been grafted in right? So now let's read this with that type of perspective. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You're part of that family. Isn't that amazing, right? So Exodus is the promise of that as God saved his people and gave them a calendar that pointed to their identity, and it was at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then Leviticus is the details of how that would look to be God's people. And it would look like this. It's one word, and it said three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy. You know, there's a lot of attributes for God. When you think about God, you probably think of how great he is and how loving he is, how kind he is, how good. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's all those things. But do you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say he's love, love, love. Nowhere in the Bible does it say he's kind, kind, kind. Nowhere in the Bible does it say loving, kind, loving, kind, loving, kindness. You know where it's, what it says? He's holy, holy, holy. That is who God is. And that's why it's so important for us to get it right in our response to who he is. He's holy, holy, holy. He's set apart and we are set apart to be holy. And so Leviticus gives us how to live in that covenant relationship with him and with one another. And it's not just for those guys back then because we're now part of them, right? Right? It would be just like if our church got up and moved and we changed our building. We're still the church. We're still the people of God. But the, the trappings of how we might do it are going to be a little bit different. And there's a significant reason why they're really different from the Old Testament to the New. And I'll give you a hint. His name's Jesus. <laughs> so Leviticus gives us that beautiful reminder that we can't just go on living any old way. All right? We can't just approach God any old way. We are chosen. We're special. We're set apart. We're a kingdom of what? We talked about this. A kingdom of? Priests. Priests. Yes, you know that. In Exodus, he said to Moses, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. 
These are the words that you're to speak to the people of Israel. He, give, he gives them that identity and it lets them know you are special and that you are going to be leading these people that are going to have the role of leading others to me. That's the role of a priest, to lead people to God. All right? So at Sinai, the Lord gives them his expectations and he ends up pulling a subgroup out of that and says, okay, these are the special guys. They're going to really lead people to me and me to the people as well. And they'll leave the Levitical priesthood gets established there. And he gave that special group of people representing him to the people. And he gave them a couple of blueprints to get this really right. A blueprint that you think of like an actual building because he builds a tabernacle that created, and here's a word phrase that's going to come up a lot, sacred space. This tabernacle created sacred space so that people would have a sacred place to go and meet with him, right? Because he's not just going to be meeting people at a burning bush on one day, uh, in a dream on a ladder on another day, calling them over here. He is going to collectively be meeting with his people, and they need a sacred space to go to do that. And so he gives them the blueprints on exactly how to do that so that they could have an audience with him and not die. Because can anyone see the face of God and, and live? No, he wants relationship, but it needs to be in his way because he wants his people to live and they need to do it his way because he's what? He's holy, holy, holy. The other blueprint comes in the form of, of, of a code of, of laws of how we're going to engage with each other, right? How we're going to live together. He gives them that blueprint for all of that. The instructions, that's what Torah means, right? All the instructions on how that's going to look for them. And so, so they don't destroy the relationship with God. He gives them a tabernacle on how to engage with him. And so they don't destroy the relationship with one another because we're prone to do both, turns out. He gives them the code of how to live next door to each other, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder. And all of this ends up becoming this really big visual reminder to them of how it looks to get back to the original sacred space, the place where God had created for them to live originally in close relationship with his people. Where was that place that God asked? He asked them in the Garden of Eden. He created that. And that worked out great, didn't it? <laughs> no, that, that space was broken by their sin and rebellion and deciding they wanted to do it their way. They want to approach God their way. So Eden was the original sacred space and the tabernacle gets built to replicate that same sacred space. We're going to hear about that over and over again throughout the rest of the study. The design of the tabernacle then is a picture of Eden. And I want you to start thinking of it that way, how God created a place where he could be, because that's exactly what he did with his people in Eden, and he's trying to replicate it again um, through this blueprint he's asking them to build. If you think about the space of the tabernacle that was created, the entrance of the tabernacle faced east, and it was guarded by cherubim. Same thing we see in Eden. The table of the presence, we learned about the table of the presence a couple of lessons ago. The food was provided on that table as an example of food being offered and food being available all the time. The food always had to be there, just like the food that Eden provided for Adam and Eve. Then we have the menorah, a huge candelabra. And the menorah was shaped with leaves that looked like a, a tree. Well, this is a reminder of the tree of life, always lit, right? And then we have the law. The law written on the tablets, and we think of Charlton Heston holding the tablets, you know, one through five on this side and six through ten on here, when actually the law would have been one through five on the front, six through ten on the back of this one, one through five on the front, six through ten on the back of that one, both sides like this. So they would have one to place inside the 
that's set to be inside of the tabernacle and one for them to have access to to look at it as well. And this is a reminder of the tree of knowledge, right? So I'm going to show another video up here for us to uh, check out. The volume gets a little loud on this one, so give me a minute to kind of turn it down. Um, the music is just a little loud in the background. Um, so, and again, this the link will be on my website to watch. It's a short video, and it gives you a visual idea of what it looks like to go through the tabernacle. I'll put the link to this um, also on my website. You can check it out as well. Um, great resource, some interesting stuff they make available on their website. I love the visualization of, of the tabernacle. And they've got another uh, set of resources on their website. You might enjoy looking at that as well. But it gives you a good picture and helps you kind of picture walking through it. It'll especially be helpful as, as we move through these sacrifices to kind of see how it would have been um, all, all laid out for us there. So the idea here that I want you to also have kind of going through your mind, not just seeing Jesus, not just understanding the idea of sacred space that God's creating, but the idea also is that God's moving his people from chaos to order, from chaos to order. And that's another good theme to be thinking about as you are trying to understand certain passages. Uh, you can ask that question, what is God doing here that brings his people from chaos to order? Uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Egypt itself and the Red Sea represent chaos. Um, of course, when God created um, the earth and the heavens and the earth, he brought everything into order. He spoke everything into existence and everything is categorized and everything is good, right? He brings chaos and he brings everything into order. When he delivers them from Egypt, he delivers them in a sense from chaos. And what the Red Sea ends up representing is, is that idea of chaos as well. And he delivers them from that. So as you get to complicated areas, you're not sure if you understand it. Ask that question. Is like, what is God doing here to bring... Um, uh, from chaos to order. And think about it in your own life as well. When you have moments in your life when you feel high anxiety, when you feel stress, when you feel depression, when you feel confusion, 
that is a moment for you to pause, hit that pause button and go back to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's very orderly for you. And it, it refocuses and recenters yourself. And it brings you back because I guarantee you, if you're dealing with stress, anxiety, all those things that are swirling, doesn't it feel like you are disconnected? You're, you're, kind of, it's, you're like spinning out there. There's a sense with chaos that you're, in a sense, not whole because you feel disconnected even from your own self. You can't bring yourself back into order. And so the idea of chaos to order also has to do with wholeness. Uh, we, of course, we have holiness, but that has to do with wholeness. So we have sacred space, we have chaos to order, we have holiness, of course, and we have wholeness. If you keep thinking through themes like that and truths like that, that God is bringing us to, I'm pretty sure as you get to some difficult passages, you're going to think, oh, I see how that is preventing them from having chaos or that is preventing it from being uh, broken. And he's bringing people back to wholeness, is restoring wholeness. So uh, this chart here, which is too small for you to read, is, is in the handout, but it's a full size of it. it's going to be on the website. And if you turn to day two, I think, in your study, uh, it's, it's there in your study. And so you can just fill, and we're going to go over all of this. You can already get ahead on your study. You'll have half your, your half of day, the next day finished. Because we're going to go through this. I'm going to help you fill in the chart. And you can get, take, you're welcome. It's day three. Yeah. Day three. Day three. There we go. So you'll get, that's right, because day two is the, the uh, hot air balloon day. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go over this. You can take as many notes as you want on here, um, fill it in as much. I, I think I'll be able to cover everything and get you all taken care of. We're going to review, which is what we covered last week. We spent a lot of time on the very first burnt offering. And so, again, this will be available to you. You can check it out on my website, the whole chart, and then you can take some notes as we go through this as well together tonight. So the first offering, again, the one that we covered last time, we're going to breeze through this one quickly. Um, but this was the burnt offering. It's called the Ola. Um, any any um, idea of what the word burnt is it, in terms of what that means? Anyone remember what that is going through it's literally burnt. It means everything is consumed. There's nothing left over. And everything is basically changed in, in matter because um, when you, have, you had an animal and now the animal no longer exists as an animal, it exists now as smoke particles, basically. It's completely changed in, in the matter. Um, the burnt offering is voluntary. Um, all are to bring the burnt offering. And every single aspect of the animal is burned, except for the one portion of the priest portion, which is the skin of the animal. Um, the offerer, the person who offers the, the sacrifice, gets nothing. The first offering, this burnt offering, is called the ola. And it's, that literally means an ascent. It means to go up. And that's literally, literally what the animal is doing. It's ascending. It's going up. Um, ola, or the burnt offering, um, it's for general atonement, it's for general sin, it's an expression of whole and complete devotion to God. And you are going to see a logical flow as you move through the first offering that's listed all the way through to the last one, um, because you have to start with this one. This is the sign to God that you are um, complete and whole and um, giving everything you have with nothing held back to God, uh, nothing held back from God. So um, as we move through 
each of these offerings, you'll see some similarities and some uh, some of the differences in this. Um, everything was God's portion, everything that was burned. Nothing is given back to the person who offers it, okay? And this was a sign of complete and total devotion. We talked last time about um, Romans chapter 12, um, that you present our bodies now as an Ola, as a living sacrifice, as a complete Ola to God. Uh, it could be a bull, it could be a sheep, a goat, a dove, a pigeon, um, but it had to be, those mammals had to be a, um, a male. They didn't, they didn't sex the birds. They didn't know if it was a male or female bird. So you could just do whatever you want. It's a little too hard to figure that out. So, but that was to allow for everyone at any station of life that they were in to be able to provide uh, that offering. Um, they could give an offering any time of the day. Um, it was an offering of a knowledge of sin, a request to have a relationship with God. It was kind of like knocking on the door and, and having the door open to you to have that communion with God. But it, was, it never went out. It was offered every morning and every evening. And it was offered on a Sabbath. So that's once a week and every day, twice a day. And it was offered at the beginning of the month. And it was offered at Passover. And it was offered along with the grain and the first fruit offering at the beginning of another celebration we're going to talk about later called the Feast of Weeks. It was also offered at the beginning of a new moon. All right. It's the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate fulfillment we find in Jesus who gave absolutely everything. Right. To God, and um, God lights up this. We're going to see this at the at the end of this passage uh, when we go all the way through. That God is the one that initiates and lights up this altar um, to begin with, and everything was given to God. Now the next offering is called the grain or the meal offering, and maybe in your Bible your headings for this passage it might say meal, it might say grain, it might say a cereal offering. So don't be confused. It's, you know, no one's adding, you know, adding any of Rice Krispies to the Lord, but that's the idea. Uh, it's a grain offerings, meal offering. So uh, this is the minka, it's called, and um, you were to bring fine flour, very fine flour. So in other words, not um, like with the seeds, like whole wheat bread. It would be ground really, really finely down. Um, you could bring it in all these different ways. You could bring it as a baked loaf of bread, grilled, fried, roasted. You could make it into a type of a cereal. It was always seasoned, as all of the offerings are, with salt. <laughs> all of them were seasoned with salt. Salt is a reminder of permanence. It's a reminder of permanence. And, and so it was, of course, it would, for them, it would be significant because salt was the preservative that they had. But you could never put any, any offering, could never have leavening of any kind in it. And this offering in particular is mentioned to not have any honey in it. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, leavening is always a representative of sin. We talked about this at length in the last message as well. And honey can contribute to the rising to, to the leavening of an item. So they, they didn't want any honey to go into that. They didn't have processed sugar, of course. But if you've ever made bread, if you want to increase the yeast ability to make a good rise, you add honey to it or you add sugar. You can add sugar to it as well. Um, there's other, another reason why honey would probably not have been um, included in this offering. And you can put a pin on that. And I'll talk to you about that one in another time. But the, the basic idea of the honey restriction it goes along with it being a, a leavening. Um, okay, so different than the, the burnt offering, only a portion of this offering was actually burned up. They didn't lay it all out there, and the, they didn't have the entire thing all get uh, consumed. So it was offered as a handful to be offered, and there was a remainder that the priests got to have. 
and then you whoever offered it you don't you don't get anything out of that one either okay and um again the five forms of that baked cakes fried and all that had to be due but the priest got a portion god got the rest and you as the person who brought the offering um, you, you don't get anything um, it's a voluntary act it was an act of worship it was an act of thanksgiving it was an act of saying you know out of the grains that i'm eating this is very special to me now think about this in the levitical time period in numbers their that grain would be scarce they had cattle and cattle were breeding but they're not plowing fields they were in the wilderness area so this would be very precious in this stage of their journey here also added to this offering would have been frankincense and oil and both of those of course are used as part of anointing a part of presenting christ and uh, we see the symbolism of Christ in the frankincense uh, being included in this and as well as the the oil that was used to bring it all together so that's the that's the grain offering and then we have this offering um, this is a peace offering or the fellowship offering and this is the only offering that the person who offers it gets a portion and so the way I help myself remember that is I think Peace and portion have the P in it. <laughs> so the peace offering, I get, I get to have a portion of that. This is the third of the offerings, and it's a shalem. And you can hear the word shalom in that. It's peace. It's the peace offering. So it's brought up in Leviticus 3. It also might be called in your Bible maybe a thanksgiving offering. Um, it can be referred to as a free will offering. We see it called a wave offering. But it could be cattle of any kind, sheep or a goat, and it could be male or female. But again, like all um, being presented to God, it had to be without defect. Uh, it could include bread, could be included along with this particular offering. Um, you could add some bread in, into that one as well. And um, in as the priest would be taking it, the portions that were unsuitable for eating would be given to God. So that's why you see things listed like the fatty portions and things like that. It's not because it's bad. It's because we're, they don't want us to be eating that. And um, so he, that's set up aside to God. The right thigh or the breast would be given to the high priest. Um, they get to have that as a meal. And the rest of the meal was supposed to be eaten within one day of the offering. They couldn't let it sit around. Leftovers after that... Um, we're supposed to be burnt. You can't have it after two days, all right? Um, so the, the peace offering or this Thanksgiving offering was given by Hannah, none other than Hannah herself. Uh, she fulfills her vow to bring Samuel up to the temple, and she brings a peace offering. This is the offering that she ends up bringing to show the peace in her heart toward God um, about her sacrifice. And it's a way of saying, I have no resentment. I'm holding nothing back in the repayment of this vow. Um, it gives thanksgiving to God for his deliverance in times of need. And uh, most sacrifices in the Old Testament were not even eaten by the worshipers at all, but the peace offering was meant to be eaten by the actual worshiper. Uh, and a portion of that, like I said, goes is brought back to um, the priest to be eaten. So um, this whole, the idea of this piece, a Thanksgiving offering, is especially mentioned this fatty portion. I picked these pictures in particular, especially the black and white one, um, because these are sheep that we're not used to seeing in America. They're very specific to the Middle East, and it's a type of a of a sheep that has a very fat tail. They were bred to get that tail fatter and fatter and fatter. And there are special dishes made in the Middle East out of the fat of this particular type of sheep. And so when we read that the fat was set aside, 
Uh, we were like, I think of a little lamb tail, this little puny tail. How much fat are they getting off that? This is the sheep that they're talking about, though. So much so, you can see the one. Uh, is, that's actually a cart holding that sheep's tail. They would make a cart because the tails would get so big and so fat. They would do put the sheep on this little cart so they could go like that. So um, that's an interesting side note on this special type of sheep. They still have to this day. Obviously, it's a modern picture, and these tails grow big and fat. All right. Um, the next one is the sin offering, Leviticus 4, and it's called the chetah, this, which is literally means sin or sin offering. Um, it's sometimes seen as an offering of an atonement for unintentional sins, all right? Um, it could be viewed maybe in your Bible as a guilt offering. The idea is removing the consequences that you have um, because of a lack of perfection in your own life. It has some elements of that burnt offering, but it also has elements of the peace offering. Some of the sins that someone need to make atonement for weren't moral sins. We're just like an oops, like, uh-oh, I did that thing. I touched this thing. So I need to make atonement. I need to be at one with God again. Uh, the word actually literally means fault offering. And you, if you watch tennis, you can hear people yell when they go across a certain line. It's, uh, it's a fault. And I don't know if they do that in pickleball, but they uh, <laughs> they yell about it in tennis, uh, crossing that, that particular line. These are sins that are committed in ignorance. These are unintentional sins. And it's an example of the grace of God because you're not going to remember everything. And then when you do, you have an opportunity to make it right. And it's a reminder that all of us have broken the law of God, even if we don't think we have. There's no one without sin. No, not one. The Bible is very clear about that. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And praise God, we can. And he has made an offering in himself to cover all the sins. Um, there are some offerings that we see, like you see here, where the priests put their hand on the lamb or the goat, whatever is being offered, as a sign of a dedication. This person, this animal, is representing me as it's being sacrificed. And then finally, this fifth final offering is the Asham offering. Um, can be translated also guilt offering. And um, in this offering here, uh, we also see it referred to as a reparation offering. Again, in your Bible outlines, it might you know, have different ways of translating that. But the purpose of this offering is to make repara reparations. So it's a little bit of a cousin to the other uh, offering, uh, but you're making it right with this one because part of this offering was to give a fifth to the priests, okay? And you're going to repay it in silver. Instead of sacrificing a lamb, you're going to repay something to the priest because you should have taken care of this sin earlier when the priest would have gotten the whole thing and you didn't. And so now you're going to do this. And so you're going to kind of repay and make it right with the priest for this particular offering. And so uh, we see again, a perfect animal is being sacrificed. And then the blood is used on this one to, to as it is to, with many of the ones that involve animals, but the blood is splashed on the altar. Some of the blood is applied to the right earlobe, the right uh, thumb, and the right big toe of the person who's making the offering. Normally we saw that sacrifice happening and the priests were the ones that are marked. And this one, the person who's bringing the offering is the one that's being marked by that. And ultimately, again, this points to the absolute perfect sacrifice of Jesus where he was able to restore that fellowship that was broken with us between us and God. So as we move forward and we see what Christ did for us, I want us to come back to this passage here in Romans chapter three. Jesus himself is our guilt offering. Christ is the one that redeemed us, ransomed us for our sins. We were redeemed in our life because of the blood 
of Jesus. And we see that all of the holy requirements are met and perfected in Christ because of what he did on the cross. So Paul writes in Romans 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And what do we have? Does it still look the same as it did for Moses and the people in Leviticus for us? Well, yes and no, thankfully. Yes, holiness is required. And no, we don't have to go, obviously, and have a sacrificial lambs being placed. We have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp, so also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. So we can look forward to a home that's yet to come. We can offer continual sacrifice of praise to God, thanking him that we don't have to have the sacrifices that were set up in the Lytical priesthood because Christ is our ultimate high priest and he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, my sins, your sins. We can proclaim our allegiance to his name and do good. You know who doesn't need your good works? God. You know who does? Your neighbor. Your neighbor does. That's who you do good. Your righteousness is as filthy rags, and he doesn't need that. He, our sacrifice to God is our praise, our allegiance, our loyalty, our faith. Your neighbor's the one who needs you to do good and to share with those who are in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. So as we, as we close right now, I, I want that to be our prayerful heart as we continue. A lot of themes, a lot of things to think about as we go, and hopefully that'll help you to tighten up your thoughts on all of that. Let's go ahead and close, and then we'll have some Q&R time. Thank you, Father, for...